Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry between all things smart contracts, oracles, and blockchains. So today, we have a pretty unique episode where we'll be discussing MEV, uh, minor extractable value, or what's kind of called now maximum extractable value with a special guest. And just before we start, kind of want to preface that kind of the goal of this podcast is to have more of a nuanced technical discussion about the subject of MEV. So there's a lot of different opinions out there about how it should be approached and how it should be solved. And we kind of just want to encourage people to learn more about these different solutions and research uh, the different solutions we present and kind of come to your own conclusions, essentially. We'll just be kind of prov uh, providing context into some of these different solutions. So really the focus is on more of the technical implementations and the different trade-offs based on the research that uh, we have done and that our guest has done. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest, uh, PMC Guhan or P. Guhan. P. P. McGowan will, will do. Yeah. It's uh, sorry to have a confusing avatar. It, it was all based on a, you know, a, um, a forum username and I wasn't really thinking about it being read out loud, but P, I answer to P. McGowan. P. McGowan. All right. Perfect. So uh, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of your, your background qualifications to kind of be talking about MEV? Sure. Yeah. So I'm an analyst coder, essentially. So in my professional life, I've worked for various scientific bodies and corporations and, and financial firms in that capacity. But for a long time, I've been purely algorithmic trading. So in, in doing that, I do my own analysis and I write my own code. And maybe more pertinently, I trade exclusive, exclusively with my own money. So it's got to work, right? You know, so losing somebody else's money would not be so bad, but yeah, not my own, you know, so the, the code's got to be right. So, I mean, uh, that kind of thing's quite common in Ethereum now, of course. I mean, it's, it's something that people do quite a bit. You get these sort of loan traders, I guess, on, on DeFi. Um, I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years or so, but just not in crypto. Um, but the relevance of this, I suppose, is that I have experience coding in highly adversarial market environments. So Ethereum in the epoch of MEV is a highly adversarial market environment of the kind that I understand and am practiced in. So I, I kind of, I know the games as it were. Um, and I suppose, you know, perhaps my greatest qualification for talking about MEV is that I predicted it. So uh, I, I did a Reddit post back in 2014. I think I called it minus front running. I certainly didn't call it MEV. Uh, and I spoke a bit about the kinds of attacks that you know we're getting now. So I suppose I feel like if I if I discovered dark matter that I might be allowed to have an opinion on dark matter, you know. So in the same way, having sort of conceived the on-chain sandwich attack, perhaps that gives me the credentials to discuss the topic, something like that. And when you when you brought this up, you know, what was it? It was back in 2014, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and what was the general response like when you brought it up then? Um, yeah, there, well, there's some people got it straight away. And other people are like, this is fine. We'll just, you know, it's, it's not a it's not a showstopper. We'll sort it out later. 
and other people didn't get that it was a problem they're kind of going well you can just fix it like this you know um so there was quite a mixture of opinion which actually it's almost like from that initial event that's sort of almost the way that the the whole thing's expanded you do have the you do have people now that are sort of saying this is an existential problem and then on the other side going it's all fine it's just something we can you know manage and contain so yeah interestingly it was a bit of a microcosm of, of where we are now you could say I'm kind of curious, like, how did you discover that this was going to be an issue? Like, what kind of, like, this was before Ethereum was even live. So, like, what well, what was kind of like the clues that led you to conclude that this that this was going to be an, going to be an issue? Yeah, I mean, it was probably the angle that I was coming at, at it from. So, I was sort of going back a bit. I like lots of people. I was horrified by what happened in 2008 and 2008 so the, the the market crash and the sort of all the corruption that that laid bare and it was it was precisely that anger i would say that birthed crypto you know i think in that first bitcoin block you've got the the times article haven't you talking about the bank of england doing quantitative easing and there there seemed to be for me this kind of double whammy that on the on the one hand you had these huge banking losses being socialized and on the other hand you had banks and hedge funds weaponizing themselves with high frequency trading so it's within that context and you've got to remember as well that there's there was no alternative at that point you know you didn't have you didn't really have cryptocurrencies that you could go well this is all right, i'm doing my own thing over here you know you you didn't have anywhere to go um i mean bitcoin was beginning to come out around that time but i it was then i heard about ethereum so i heard about this programmable blockchain that promised distributed equitable markets and systems of all kinds and uh, it blew my mind you know i was so excited about it uh, and i still am by the way you know it's still just i, I mean I, it's obviously i think it's a fantastic technology and, and that's why i'm involved in it uh, in the way i've chosen to be involved in it in the way that i am but i was coming at it from that point of view so i wanted a better system you know, a less exploitable system and and then i looked at it a bit closer and it hadn't been released, as you said, it was this was pre-Genesis. So I looked at the, the draft documents, but I noticed that that block creation had largely been borrowed from Bitcoin. So in that instance, the miners have total control of inclusion, transaction inclusion and ordering. And here's the interesting thing that when you do P2P currency transfer like Bitcoin, you know, when it's just peer to peer, one to one transaction order doesn't matter it really doesn't matter because you're not accessing a shared resource so for that reason satoshi didn't have to solve fair ordering he didn't solve it because he didn't have to so you know when you've got a shared resource it's very different transaction order matters a very a very great deal because you're in competition for that shared resource with other participants so for example a distributed exchange is a shared resource. An insurance market is a shared resource. A retail market is a shared resource. And at the end of the day, most smart contracts themselves are shared resources. So I guess it was it was from that realization. It's the difference between this one-to-one -one relationship and this one-to-many, if you like. It's from that that I was able to predict the kind of exploitations and, and attacks. That we see now um and yeah unfortunately i was i was right
you know, I, I don't like being wrong, but I would have liked to have been wrong <laughs> on that case. It's, it's but, interesting. Uh, yeah. I was thinking about how you might have solved it. I, I didn't even think about the Bitcoin parallel, so that, that which is mm. actually the most uh, plausible of all the different uh, ways you you know you you could have thought about it. But I guess before we go deeper into the kind of the technical stuff, I think it'd be good to establish like a working definition because I think a lot of times people talk over each other and they don't even have mm. a common understanding of where the other side's coming from. So maybe could you describe MEV in your own words to a new person in maybe the simplest way possible? Sure. Yeah. 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 And, and I agree, by the way, I think, I think different definitions of MEV are muddying the waters and that, and that's not helping the debate. So my definition is nearly identical to Flash Boys, the Flash Boys 2.0 paper, that sort of seminal work out of Cornell University. Um, you've asked me to do it in my own words, so I, I will slightly change the wording, but it's it's very close and, and I urge everybody to use something similar at least. So I would say MEV is the profit to be made from reordering and censoring transactions. That's pretty much it for me. So. The Ethereum blockchain is written by consensus, uh, but the content of each block is chosen by just one miner. And this means that miners have total control over the content of their blocks. So that gives them the, the freedom to front run, back run, sandwich, and generally exploit transactions. Um, I, I, think it's, as, I think it's important also to say what MEV is not. So MEV is not every way every different way that a miner makes money. It's not block rewards, uh, it's not gas fees. And to my mind, it's also not latency arbitrage or cross-chain arbitrage. And I'll, I'll be coming back to that actually. Gotcha, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've always kind of thought of it is that the production of blocks are decentralized, but what's actually in those blocks is essentially centralized every time a, a block is produced. Is that kind of how you see it where there's most of the network is decentralized, but then this crucial part of like what is actually in these blocks is basically entirely centralized uh, for each individual block. That bang on, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, yeah, and, and I think it was, I, I, my guess is that it was an oversight due to the consensus technology being necessarily largely borrowed from Bitcoin. So I think what, what was happening in those early days of Ethereum development is that they had this monumental task to perform, which is to create an executable blockchain. You know, they, they, they were preoccupied quite rightly with the EVM and all of that, you know, all of those mechanisms. So it's like, like we know the Bitcoin consensus mechanism works. So we'll sort of take that and then, you know, we'll build this, this sort of executable smart chain on top of that. And I completely understand that decision. You know, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I have no criticism at all for the developers that were in the situation doing that but you know the, but now it's seven years down the line isn't it and and it feels like we've got to face up to some of those structural decisions that were made and and sort of mature the technology perhaps yeah so i think you know now that we kind of generally understand what minor extractable value is i think it's good to look at some of the different types of mev and, mm -hmm. and, and how and, and how they generally work. Maybe if you have like some specific examples, you know, we wrote a few down, a few down, but maybe you can go through the ones that you know that that you've identified. Sure, I've actually got no specific examples in front of me. I must admit, um, I can talk in general terms. So, 
you know, you've got just a sort of, shall I just run through them quickly? Yeah, yeah just run through yeah, them. Yeah. So you, you've got, I would start with, with front running, you know, the classic. So in a front running attack, the attacker sees a victim transaction, inserts their transaction in front of it um, and profits that way. So for example, if they see a big buy order coming in on an exchange that they know is going to move the price up, the attacker buys first uh, and gets a bargain and then the victim overpays essentially. So in back running, it's, it's kind of the same, but in reverse. So attacker, an attacker sees a victim transaction, inserts their transaction after rather than before. So in this example, of, you know, the, we get a big buy order coming in that moves the price up. The attacker sells into it and gets a good price that way. Um, and the victim overpays. So there is a, 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 a particularly nasty attack called the sandwich attack, which basically involves doing both of these things. So in a sandwich attack, you front run to open the trade and then the victim transaction is in the middle and then you back run to close out. So it's kind of a riskless value extraction, if you like. Um, and then you've got arbitrage. So arbitrage is a bit different. You're profiting from the price difference of the same asset across different markets. So, so for example, if you've got you know, a link at $40 on Uniswap and $42 on Bounder, then the attacker just instantaneously buys link on Uniswap and sells on Bounder for a you know, $2 profit in that case. So there's also, um, you know, there's also liquidations as another, another form of, of MEV. It's actually a, a kind of application specific front running or back running, as far as I can tell. I'm not actually, I'm not an expert in liquidations, but each DeFi protocol has its own mechanism for liquidation and, and the attacks are, are specific to each. In general terms, you're paid for liquidating under collateralized loans and that incentivizes attackers to, to front run to win the liquidation. Or as I understand it, they can also back run price oracles, um, such as of course, Chainlink oracles, um, again, to be the first. Gotcha, yeah, yeah, those make, this, make sense. I think for, for arbitrage and liquidations, it kind of seems like that's something that ultimately the miners will kind of capture completely. So even if other users try and generate their own transaction, the miners can really just go replace the arbitrage with their own transaction. So is, is that, is the transaction replacing the act of MEV or is it the act of doing arbitrage that that's the MEV? Um, so, right. I, I will be making this distinction, but arbitrage is inevitable in any market system. But the difference is that arbitrage is done as a form of MEV at the moment. So, uh, and that's and that's because of the way that that um, time order is corrupted within Ethereum. I mean, in in terms of what you're saying about miners, I, I think ultimately I've got a feeling that that miners will, uh, yeah, will increasingly sort of do their own extraction of these kinds of things because the more things settle down. I mean, if they do at the moment, everything's expanding, you know, so so rapidly. But if you do get a sort of few smart contracts, say. That are just like the sort of JP Morgans of the world that everyone's using all the time. Um, then, yeah, I think miners will just just use their own code to hoover those up. I don't know that they'll, for example, 
allow people that win MEV auctions to do that. But you know, that's all conjecture really. Yeah, I think as, because MEV is still quite new, I think as people are learning about it more and, and miners are you know getting more sophisticated, I, I think you'll just see uh, them take a lot of these kind of, I call it like, some people call them like whistleblower rewards or kind of like on-chain rewards that anyone can get. You know, the miner or the miners or people paying the miners can just kind of get those every time. You know, you have the liquidations, you have like essentially like incentives for yield harvesting or certain keeper functions. Um, and I actually saw a CLG, maybe you can speak to this though. There was an interesting liquidity provisioning one the other day. Yeah, so on, on Uniswap, a whale decided they basically, it's like a different form of front running where they saw a trade on Uniswap, Uniswap V3. And then before the trade, they added liquidity uh, because in Uniswap V3, you can add liquidity to like specific uh, uh, bounds of price. They added a uh -huh. liquidity at like the very precise price that the user was trading at, put their transaction in front, they got all of the fees, and then afterwards they withdrew all their liquidity. So they were basically front running all of the other liquidity providers, siphoning all the fees for themselves. This was like a, this was a couple of days ago. I don't know if you heard but, about this, but it's a pretty interesting form of front running. A, a liquid, it's a liquidity sandwich attack. Essentially, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it, it benefits the user technically because lower slippage, but you're basically destroying the profits of all the other liquidity providers. So. Oh yeah, that's right. You're taking the value from them, them in order to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, just uh, so like even today we're seeing new forms of uh, MEV being extracted from maybe not necessarily users, but then the liquidity providers who are essentially just users anyway. So uh, one question is, do you think that there are good and bad forms of MEV uh, or do you generally think that some forms of MEV are strictly worse than other forms from like a user's perspective? Yeah, uh, well, I think it's a, a really good question. Um, the answer, in my opinion, is no, they're all bad. And I'll explain why I think that. So first of all, I mean, the, the one you've just, you know, it's interesting, you've just described a liquidity sandwich attack. I mean, in generally, certainly in, in distributed exchanges where people are sandwiching buy and sell orders, everyone agrees that sandwich attacks are, are bad. It's very, it's pretty uncontroversial, you know, even the sort of the greatest MEV apologists sort of agree that there's no price discovery going on. There's no greater market efficiency that comes out of it. Um, value is, is taken without consent from the victim, trans victim transaction and, and no information is transferred to the market in return. So, you know, you're, you're leaving the market as you found it just with this value extracted from a transaction. Um, but, but front running and back running is just as bad. You know, the only difference is the attacker keeps their trade open which actually probably means that they consider it to be good value. So in, in this case, the attacker is still using the victim to get a better price for themselves at the expense of a worse price for them. So again, there's no market efficiency there. The attacker's just taken value. In fact, I would argue that it, it potentially reduces efficiency because you're forcing someone to overpay. So you're actually leaving the market in a less efficient state, actually more out of line. Um, so, I mean, those are those three are generally considered to be the most exploitative forms of MEV. And I've got some data on this, actually, and this is pretty unaudited data. It's just I've, I've started writing my own code to analyze the Ethereum chain in this way. Uh, 
the early results seem to be that around 43% of all MEV is front running, back running sandwiching. So it's a high percentage, right? Um, but a lot of people think that ARBs and liquidations, for example, they, they might think that they're good at MEV, especially, especially arbitrage. So for example, with latency arbitrages is often used as a sort of, you know, the example of, of good MEV. So on, in the traditional finance, you might have a stock on NASDAQ and it's also on the London Stock Exchange. And, the, and the, the stock price changes on NASDAQ, but it hasn't yet changed on the London Stock Exchange. So an ARBA comes along and ARBs the LSE into line. And in traditional markets in that way, I broadly agree that arbitrage aids price discovery and, and it, it helps, you know, it sort of greases the wheels of the markets and, and helps things along. Um, and I agree that, that, you know, that's a sort of good example, an example of good arbitrage. But Ethereum can't do latency arbitrage because latency is a measure of time. And time order in Ethereum is perfectly corrupted by miner control. So miners never order transactions by time, never. Always by self-interest. So it's always by the MEV that can be extracted from them or the gas price or the MEV auction bid, you know, all of those. So what that means is in the space of a block in Ethereum today, you cannot know whether the ETH link pair on Bounder, say, is lagging behind the ETH link pair on Uniswap and needs to be brought into line. You cannot know that. All you can say with confidence is that a miner rearranged transactions so that there was an opportunity and then exploited it. So does that make sense? Do you see the difference there? Gotcha. So it's because at any given point in time, the miners ultimately control the, the ordering. It makes sense that none of the transactions on Ethereum are ordered by time. They're all by how much a miner can generate. So ultimately, when you're performing arbitrage, it's not based on time. It's just kind of based on the opportunities that the miners have left other users. Yeah, sorry, yes. As you're speaking, I was thinking, yeah, you're, you're quite right. Actually, m miners are in control of time <laughs> on Ethereum. <laughs> They're literally, warp, they, they warp time to their advantage is a, is a way that you could put it. They control time. They're time lords. <laughs> Would you say that also like a lack of finality also plays into this a little bit or, or no? A lack of finality. So how would you, how do you mean? Well, like you have one block, but then the block can base it. You can have a, a reorg attack on it. And then maybe that's not as, uh, you know, yeah. you, have, you have to have so many confirmations in order to be finalized. My, my feeling is that the block structure, and I might, I might be wrong about this, my, my feeling is that the, the block structure in Ethereum works really pretty well, which is what you're sort of talking about, the sort of structural uh, blockchain attack. In fact, I'm slightly relying you know, in, in any solution I have that sort of relying on the, on the structure of the blockchain to be relatively sound. I know I've, I've heard of time reorg attacks, of course, but it's a, it's a pretty high bar to be able to reorganize the the blockchain compared with what a miner has to, to do now, where it's completely costless to reorganize transactions exactly as they see fit. It seems to me a different level of a different order of magnitude of attack in terms of the resources you need. I mean, is that, do you think that's right? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it depends on how deep it gets into the blockchain, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. 
and can... you've got the, you've got the same you've got the same you know that the, the the thing that i really like about i think the 51 percent attack idea is is really strong you know this idea that yeah sure you might have enough nodes to mount a 51 percent attack and reorder the blockchain but if you do then you're by definition more invested in that blockchain than anybody else on the planet and therefore have the most to lose when everyone sees what you're doing and runs you know runs a mile from the blockchain and the value plummets i, I think it's a really strong like nuclear option and yeah it, um, it, it, it will be interesting though I, I think there are some different um things to consider with the eth2 because you have kind of a proof of stake mm -hmm. model and so you kind of know the validators ahead of time but that's kind of a yep, separate sure. issue but but yeah 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 so you know and i i think by the way these these um you know what i've described this 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 is relevant to liquidations too so you know if, if a user tries to add collateral to avoid liquidation but an attacker senses that transaction so that they can liquidate the victim and, and take the reward that's not that's not efficient and that's again only possible because of this uh time order corruption because because miners are time lords as i've just described them so this this is why i i classify all mev is bad it's it's because mev comes from buying the right to corrupt transaction order to your advantage and when i say buying the right i mean that can be because you've bought the the graphics cards and you know the kit to be a miner or it can be that you've you've won the block in an mev auction but you're, you're buying the right to to corrupt transaction order um so that you can benefit from it so so yeah you know, there's there's a, a view that I have of that there is such a thing as objective fair order, and there's such a thing of the order of that transactions should be in, which is send time order. Um, so if you get away from that, then you're essentially corrupting the time order, and and that's what's happening continuously on Ethereum. So yeah. so so it's my my view, you can only have good MEV once you've fair ordered transactions. But at that point, you don't have MEV, you have latency arbitrage. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair point. That's a good yeah. distinction between, you know, of your definition That's a good uh, example of defining, you know, arbitrage MEV compared to how some other people might define arbitrage MEV. And so having that kind of understanding really helps, you know, actually have yeah. constructive debate on the topic. Yeah. Um, so. So we talked a little bit about the different types of MEV. Like, what? Why do you? Before we kind of get into some proposed solutions, you know, why do you think MEV is just so important to the long-term success of Ethereum? Uh, so, yeah, I wrote an article about this actually. I, I imagined Ethereum at full adoption, and I extrapo extrapolated from the ratio of trade volume to MEV what it might, you know, what the future might look like in that world. Because you know, what we're all, what we're all hoping for in the Ethereum community is that. Ethereum gets adopted across the planet for kind of everything. So, you know, in this finger in the air estimate, it looked as if it could be something in the region of $2 trillion worth of MEV extracted annually, according to current figures. So that would be the national budget of China being taken out of everybody's pockets on a yearly basis. And I, honestly, I don't think that would be tolerated. You know, what I'm really saying is, is there won't be serious adoption if we allow that to happen. You can't have $2 trillion worth of tax being taken from people before they even have to pay their actual taxes to their nation states. So more than that, I think the, the types of attacks that we're getting today 
and, and that calculation essentially, or that estimate, relate directly to DeFi. So the kind of MEV you get is a function of your use case. And as the use cases for Ethereum expand, so will the attack vectors of MEV. So an example I, I often give is if you, if you consider a retail market, you know, which Ethereum isn't really being used for that much at the moment, but we sort of hope it will be, yeah? So imagine an open marketplace where you have a smart contract for groceries and you can send your shopping list as a transaction to the blockchain. So a small local firm might see your shopping list transaction and they can offer you the best price and they're just around the corner so they can actually bike it over to you as well at, at you know, no or very little cost. So they can beat everybody. But Megacorp has paid the MEV auction winner to censor all transactions except their own from the block. So in that case, there's no need to compete on price with you, sorry, with the, the small firm. So you overpay and you know, your local grocery store closes down. So that's an example of a sort of censorship attack, if you like, but in a retail market. So now imagine similar situations when Ethereum is used in entertainment, you know, in, 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 um, in government and healthcare, you know, or, uh, or the military is an interesting one if you uh, sort of chew over that. So my point is that MEV threatens all of these use cases and, you know, in unpredictable and, and potentially severe ways. So, I mean, that's all sort of, you know, futuristic stuff. But more pressingly right now, we have a potential problem with L2s. So L2 rollups are essentially extremely high value blocks of MEV, so thousands of transactions worth in each one. And when they're rolled up, they will interact with state on L1. And I've only really just sort of begun to consider this, but you know, the potential front running opportunities from censoring an L2 rollup are potentially mind boggling, potentially orders of magnitude greater than they are now. And that's not the distant future, is it? I think censorship is kind of an aspect of MEV that people don't think about because we don't we don't really see that today. But realistically, miners or eventually validators have complete control. So I think that the thought experiment of a, a megacorp stepping in and using MEV to enact their monopolistic policies uh -huh. is like the antithesis of what blockchain was supposed to be in the Correct. first place. So yeah. it kind of seems like censorship. That's not really commonly, at least from what I've seen, commonly perceived as MEV, but it basically is MEV. And so I, I would just kind of, I would, I would agree that that's, that's going to become a larger and larger issue. I think we could see that even in DeFi itself, if it becomes profitable to censor specific trades until you get your trade to go through first. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. I mean, for, for me, censorship is a standout issue, actually. Censorship is the, the most severe one. I, I literally cannot think of a use case for Ethereum that isn't severely hampered or made, you know, inviable by censorship alone. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that maybe, maybe it isn't really perceived as being a huge problem at the moment, but that, that, that is the, I think that's the big one. And, and the thing is censorship doesn't have to be forever. You know, you, you can, you only need to censor a transaction for as long as it's ineffective. So in that case of the retail market, you just censor it for the block in which the match has taken place. And then you let the transaction into the chain and it fails and then you know, this, the small grocer has to pay the failed transaction cost as well you know just to really spike them so at, at root i suppose what what i'm getting at as well is that it's what it really is is a severe data integrity issue 
because you've because transaction order is is data too right you know the order of data is as important as the content of data and and when you have data integrity issues you have unpredictable negative impacts um and an mev as we know it today might just be the first i think for, for me the few of the main issues is like putting a lot of like deploying a lot of capital on ethereum into you know essentially most applications like i, I think this really affects applications that's why it affects smart contract platforms it really it questions the integrity because most app, most applications usually have time order that, that they need especially yes. financial especially financial markets and, and uh the other thing it, it really kind of can it can affect composability a lot um so i think that's another area where it makes it tough to do certain composability transactions or or you can use composability i guess in different types of sophisticated attacks but uh, i i just yeah. i feel i feel i fail to see how anyone will put a lot of money like deployed in applications on ethereum when you have it's not just the MEB, like it's very unpredictable and there's so mm -hmm. many like hidden risks that you don't really it's hard like we are starting to quantify them a little bit more which is good but um like there's just a lot of unknowns yeah and i and i think that will i think you're right and i think that will that will continue to be the case and until it's addressed really so i think i think that's why i want to characterize it as look let's not be trying to i mean i think you know i'm, I'm all for mev fixes at every level but i think if you don't if you don't for me if you don't fix it in the in the base layer then you're just going to be perpetually playing whack-a-mole in all the layers above it because you're going to get all these you know negative unpredictable effects happening continuously and it's very difficult to yeah you're going to have to stay on on top of them continuously i think it actually seems easier to me to try and fix it in the base layer but you know that could be hubris <laughs> Yeah, now that we've kind of set like a baseline context for MEV and now kind of getting into why we need to solve it, we can, I think we should start kind of looking at some of the different proposed solutions, kind of starting with MEV auctions and talking about your solution and then a chain like FSS. So kind of just, uh, I'll, I'll set some like context for listeners about what MEV auctions are from kind of my perspective and then you can you can chime in. It's, uh, it's essentially auctioning off the right to order transactions within a block and then using whatever funds are raised to essentially redistribute it back to the community, to the people who, who were, uh, had their funds stolen from them effectively. So you could kind of consider Flashbots almost as a form of MEV auction where you're selling like a portion of the block space through these bundles that uh, other users can buy to then go front run or to essentially do other types of transactions, but kind of, the main thing of MEV auctions is it seems like is to basically mitigate the on-chain priority gas auctions caused by on-chain bots and kind of moving that that off-chain. And so it kind of effectively, the whole thing is that it's kind of democratizing MEV, making it easier for people to access MEV, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think you can kind of step into, but it's effectively people are, are bidding off-chain in order to get the right to order all the transaction within a block and then they can extract the MEV as they can. And it kind of, what I've seen at least is that it can help prevent like time bandit attacks and help prevent some of these more consensus serious issues in gas price auctions. But I'm kind of, I'm, I'm curious on your your general thoughts on MEV auctions. They're, they're kind of their advantages and their disadvantages. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, I must admit, I don't, I don't get the, I don't get how it prevents chain reorg or time bad attacks. But my, my, my view on it is that, as you, as you mentioned, it sort of solves for the transaction bloat that comes from gas price auctions. So it, it solves for people continually trying to outbid each other um, using the resources of the mempool and the blockchain in order to extract MEV. And, and actually, I think it's, it's effective in, in doing that. So I think it does keep a lot of that bloat outside the mempool and off the blockchain. And, and, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a sort of good aspect of it. Um, MEV auctions are not a solution to MEV extraction. And I think that that is a common misunderstanding. So MEV auctions actually aim to maximize the extraction of MEV, which I think you, you referred to there, but they're, they're not, I think, I think they're often sort of thought of as being this sort of panacea, but, but actually they're solving this for me, they seem to be solving this one quite specific problem, which is that Ethereum was suffering from transaction bloat from everyone sort of jumping on each other to try and grab these MEV opportunities. But in, in solving it in this way, it's it's actually the side effect of that is that it's maximized the amount of MEV that can be extracted. Would it be right to say that because you have to pay the miners, it's like an auction, you have to pay the miners to get the right to order these transactions that whoever gets the right has the maximum incentive to extract as much MEV as humanly possible so that they can get their capital back that they just paid the miner because the 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 the, the margins are likely to be very small. And so most of that extraction that the orderer is taking is going to end up being paid to the miners anyway. So realistically, it seems like most of the MEV would pretty much still be there. And if anything, it would be significantly worse because they have an incentive to maximize MEV in every single transaction and then even potentially censor those that don't give them any MEV because it's not worth it for them to include it. Yeah, yeah they, they have to. They they. They have to, in order to win the auction, they have to have extracted more MEV than anybody else. And, and actually, I did it in one of my sort of early posts on ETH Research. Um, I, I sort of knocked up a spreadsheet model of, of how, when it comes to it, it's going to be the people that have the most money and the, the best resourced that win the MEV auctions, because they're the ones that can, for example, engage in backrunning attacks, where if they want to trade out, a whale wants to trade out for a large amount of money, they can just back run all these little small transactions from the sort of the, the little people. And, and they can do that in a, in a way that means that the block is more valuable to them than it is to someone that has less money. Does that make sense? So, so there, it, it creates this asymmetry where the demand is going to come from the well-resourced for these blocks. And there's another aspect to it, which, which I think is, is not, commonly understood which is that mev auctions ultimately raise total user transaction costs in my opinion and the reason for that is that the total user transaction cost is the mev that can be extracted from their transaction plus the auction costs that they pay and that's true whether it's a gas price auction or an mev auction and i think MEV increases both, or at least it, it makes it easier for, for that to happen. So in terms of how I think uh, MEV auctions increase MEV, 
So if you take sandwich attacks, for example, they're actually quite hard to pull off using gas price auctions. So you have to offer a high enough bid to front, to front run to get ahead of the victim transaction, but a low enough bid for your back run that's included after the victim transaction, but you know within the same block. And everyone else is trying to do the same thing and they can get in your way. So it's actually quite risky and you can sort of nobble each other doing it. But with an MEV auction, you can just build this bundle, like a three transaction bundle, front run, victim transaction, back run. And you either win the bid or you don't. So it's perfectly risk-free exploitation for the attacker. And as such, more of it is possible and it costs, and the cost to the victims goes up. So if you look at an average Flashbots block, uh, in their explorer it's it's full of sandwich trades so for an attacker the difference between a gas price auction and an mev auction is kind of like the difference between having a spear and a sniper rifle you know it's it's less effort a greater precision and that's true of of other attacks too so as i say if you remember i said the total user transaction cost is the mev extracted from a transaction plus the auction costs well the MEV, I, I suggest, goes up because it's so much more efficient. As, as I said, it's kind of the point is that you, you want to efficiently extract more MEV. But that also means that increases auction costs. Why? Because more MEV can now be extracted. So the value to any attacker has gone up. So an attacker can now afford to raise their auction bid. In fact, they have to they have to, to out, outbid the other attackers. So what happens is that ordinary users get caught up in this. Ordinary users must compete with the attackers to get their transactions included, yeah? So would you say that, you know, most, most regular users who, who don't know much about how this works, like they're mostly going to incur, uh, like incur it through slippage, essentially? For yeah, the most yeah, part. yeah, that's right. So, so, yeah, so I mean, I, what I've just said is sort of quite, quite, potentially quite complex. The, the simple version, I suppose, is that users must outbid their attackers. Um, as you as you suggest, I think what you're sort of alluding to is that is that there's a complexity problem here as well for users. So in terms of user experience, so all right, let's try, let's try, you know, let's try a little thought experiment. So let's say you're submitting a transaction and you want it included quickly. And at the best price, which is you know pretty common. So, you tell me is the best way of doing that to one put a high gas price in to bribe the miner, two put a minimal gas price in and hope that the MEV value of your transaction is enough to bribe the miner, or three create a trust of flashbots bundle and bid directly to try and get your transaction included, or four use an aggregator to try and do the same thing. So out of those four options, which would you say is cheapest for you? Yeah, it's kind of a tricky one. I mean, ultimately, when, there, when there's so many different ways you could submit a transaction, and there's so many different variables. Do you want to pay fees through MEV? Do you want to pay fees through like the gas fees itself? Do you want to pay through both? Do you want to try to go through like a, a, mm -hmm. a, essentially like a payment channel? You know, there, there's, I think that complexity for users, it, I think that's kind of like that's kind of like an underappreciated point is that once you streamline MEV, you really have a lot more variables to take into account. And uh, kind of just going back to your previous example of like a megacorp uh, 
censoring smaller competition. I feel like once you have MEV auctions, then like you said, the, the, the actor with the highest amount of capital is going to be able to afford this bid for all the ordering in a block. Yeah. So yeah. effectively, if a, if a greater international entity is able to just buy up the rights to multiple blocks in a row of ordering, then like the, the act of censorship is very, very simple. You don't need to do a 51% attack. You don't need to reorg the chain. You just buy the rights to the ordering and then you can no, censor no, no. all you need. That's that's quite right. But that but that's I mean, you're absolutely right. That's sort of on the you know, on the on the sell side, if you like. That's on the on the you know the, the business side. But on the what I'm alluding to is on the user side, you you can't know what the most effective way is of getting your transaction through. So because because those options are sort of dizzying, you know, those those four options I gave, and I don't I think there's more than four, you know, as you've as you've said, I think there are many more than four, it, it becomes impossible to know what what the best way what the cheapest way of getting your transaction put through is i think you'd need an an mev mining rig of your own to look at every possible parameter so it's so what happens i would suggest is that most of the time you overpay so most of the time you might spend 30 dollars say on gas to bribe the miner but not realize that your transaction is actually worth 40 dollars to them in mev and they would have included it anyway so you know <laughs> In that case, you've paid thirty dollars too much. So it, it's it's yeah, it's made it more complex for users to know when they're getting value, as well as just generally increasing the the transaction costs for them. Kind of seems like there's a, there's like an inverse correlation between the higher the MEV efficiency, the lower the fee efficiency, and vice versa. So the more MEV you extract the more like information asymmetry there is about how much like you actually need to pay to get your to get your transaction in i think that, that might be right yeah i haven't thought about it like that but that that might be right but certainly the the more mev there is in the system the more you have to compete against to get your transaction included where you want it so or you know or at all so you are in competition with the amount of mev that there is in the system so if you've if you've created a mechanism which allows greater mev extraction then you've created greater competition for users to get their transactions included, which means yeah, higher transaction costs overall. Yeah, that, that makes sense. In terms of like, you've laid out a lot of like examples of why MEV auctions is not really a solution. It's not supposed to be a solution to MEV. It's actually trying to do the opposite. Do you, do you think MEV auctions have any role in the future when MEV does get solved through some solution or is there really just no need for MEV auctions after MEV is eliminated effectively? So if you've, if you've actually solved MEV, by which I, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't extract value by reordering transactions anymore. If you really have got that final MEV solution and you've removed the power of the miner to do that, then no, there is, there's no function for an, an MEV auction because MEV auctions are there to bribe miners to, to manipulate transaction order. So well, if you fix that, then there's, there's nothing, you're not, the miners have nothing left to auction off. And that's actually what I'm, <laughs> I'm aiming to do. I'm trying to make it so that the miners have nothing to sell. So yeah, you can't, you can't run an auction if there's nothing for sale. So in that situation that you've described, no, there, there wouldn't be any place for an MEV auction. Gotcha. It's kind of what I figured, but I wanted to get a get a confirmation from the sure. man himself. Yeah. So, you kind of you kind of mentioned your solution. Could you 
kind of dive more into that one? Yeah, great. Um, so it seems it seems to me that all of our problems with MEV come from two things. Um, we've I've already sort of you know, spoken a bit about this, but firstly, we have this wonderful decentralized network where blocks are validated and propagated by consensus. But at that last critical millisecond, as we've spoken about, the network hands all the power to one computer, the miner, in that moment. In that moment, Ethereum is centralized, right? And they alone choose transactions for their block. So what I'm suggesting is, all I'm suggesting is, we allow more than one computer to decide what the content of each block will be. So we decentralize block content creation. And that shouldn't be controversial for crypto, right? You know, that's, a, that's distributed technology. I think, I think a lot of people assumed that that's what we were doing already. Um, it's just that it happens not to be the case at the moment. So secondly, the second big one, if you, if you go to Etherscan and there's a, there's a link you can click on to look at pending transactions, which is essentially a view of the mempool, so you'll, you'll see, if you look now, there are, there'll be between 100 and 150,000 pending transactions sloshing around. So your centralized miner has a choice of any combination of hundreds of thousands of transactions to exploit. Yeah. So I guess I'd describe that as shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, you know, it's just it's you're 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 the only game in town at that moment. You're the you're the you're the one actor that can do anything, and you've got 150,000 transactions to exploit. You know, it's an extraordinary situation. Um, so my proposal is is a class of solutions called content layer solutions, and the content layer aims to bring structure to the mempool in a distributed way to sort of solve both of these problems at once. So in the, in the simplest implementation, and I'm gonna describe like the really the simplest implementation, it does this by scheduling nodes one after the other to just chunk up pending transactions as they arrive as quickly as possible. Uh, and and, th and this, to, this brings some structure to the mempool. So the idea is that if we can do this quickly enough, like batch transactions up at sort of, you know, not much slower than network latency. So maybe every one to three seconds, if we can do that, then we've reduced the number of fish in the barrel just by that simple act, by a lot. So we could reduce it from 150,000 to less than 70 because the transactions come in like, you know, maybe 23 transactions a second, something like that. So over three seconds, you might have 70 transactions that somebody can exploit. So the idea is that just from that simple act, you have far fewer MEV opportunities. And, and you've brought some time order to the mempool because each one of these chunks that you're creating is ordered by time. So it's a first step to fair ordering. And the only way this works, of course, is that a miner must write content chunks. And there can be many content chunks in one block in the order that, that they're created or they will fail attestation. So this is why it's a base layer solution. And, and this is also why I think, you know, it, the only full and final fix to MEV will be a base layer solution because you need to hold miners to account. You need to say, look, you're not the one in control of the content. The content's been decided by all of these 
other nodes working together in harmony and your job is just to write that content and if you don't we're not going to vote for your block yeah so in the simplest version of the content layer that's actually all you do um you know i can talk about the, the benefits of that um yeah i'm kind of curious like what, what, what are the like, what, what are the benefits and kind of what are like the trade-offs versus the the status quo of no <laughs> fair ordering sure okay so so the advantage straight away is that you're reducing mev now in this simple content layer you're not eradicating it okay you're, you're reducing it so by reducing the attack parameters from 150,000 transactions to say 70 transactions my, my analysis shows this could potentially be by quite a lot so i've got some figures on this this is kind of hot off the press and, and therefore also needs auditing but anyway it seems to me that if our content chunks are let's say they're 12 seconds long because i had to sort of do it at the granularity of a block but if our content chunks are 12 seconds long it looks as if we could get a 40 percent reduction in the most exploitative mev so i'm talking about sandwiches front running back running so potentially a 40 percent reduction in that and an 18 percent reduction across all types of mev and that is just from just from chunking up the mempool in that way so the, the methodology I used to get that data is I looked at how much MEV can take place within one block of a transaction arriving. And I kind of discounted anything that, that couldn't. So it's like, you know, the, the stuff that would still be, that would still be exploitable if you had a, a relatively fast moving content there. And it came out at about a 40% sort of reduction for the most exploitative. So remember that I'm talking about content chunks being between one and three seconds long, not 12 seconds. So actually, I'd expect the reduction to be greater than that. But yeah, this is early data and, and, and needs looking at, but it's, it's promising, right? So I also expect this to translate to lower user transaction costs overall, because as I've said earlier, transaction costs are a function of, ME, of the amount of MEV in the system, at least partly. So I, I would hope that for that reason, if you're reducing the MEV, you're also reducing overall transaction costs. So that's kind of two big wins off the, off the bat, if you like. Um, I also think that you've got an improved user experience potentially because you start to see transaction order become visible before transactions are included in the box. So you might see, you know, three seconds after you send your transaction off, you can see, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's been chunked. It's like I don't know, 30 chunks away or something that's going to go in, in in two blocks time. And you can kind of know when it's going in. So you get this sort of estimate, accurate estimate of execution time. Um, and I think that there's another aspect, and this, this will require a lot of debate in the community, but to my mind, users hate having to set gas prices. It's like a, it's a fag, you know, and it's confusing. And it's, it's one of the things that the, EIP 1559 was trying to solve with its base fee. Well, you may be able to do away with gas price auctions. You may be able to do away with them completely because there's far less to auction off. You know, you're only bribing order within a one to three second time window, not over many hours or even days. But even if you decide that's too big a step and like, you know, the community is not ready for it, you can still run your gas price auctions. It's just that they're not as relevant anymore and people don't have to worry about them as much so 
you know, you'll still get gas price rising and falling on demand. I mean, I mean, there has to be a, a mechanism like the EIP 1559 base fee. In fact, I think it would be the EIP 1559 base fee, but you would have less, less or no need for the tip in that situation. So yeah, it's it, your, your, and your transactional data integrity is improved because your, your time orders improved. So you're getting less, you know, less sort of formal um, data corruption in terms of, of data order being corrupted. Um, but if you don't mind me carrying on, there are also some quite interesting uh, benefits when it comes to mitigating the centralizing effect of MEV. So if you think about it, you've only got 70 transactions to exploit, not a combination of 100,000 transactions. So if you're going the other side of the fence now, if you are you know, the MEV extractor, and you don't need to have such a massive MEV mining rig. You don't need to have perhaps such cutting edge software to look at combinations of 100,000 transactions. You've only got to look at 70. So, you know, it actually, in Flashbot's terms, it's sort of like the MEV that remains will be more democratized, I would suggest. I mean, I, I, I want to eradicate it ultimately, but I think at least in the interim, it will actually be more democratized. You've only got 70 transactions that anyone needs to look at. Um, so there's one more point which I, I want to make, which is quite relevant to you guys. So if you're running an L2 or, you know, say an Oracle network updating um, price data on chain, it's very important that you get your L2 rollups and your Oracle updates on chain, obviously. Um, I'm, you know, you don't need me to tell you that. Because of MEV, Chainlink would be wise, I would say, to have their own validators to avoid or mitigate the possibility of being censored by you know, an attacking MEV auction winner. So let's say you do this and you, and you have a thousand validators to, to force inclusion of your transactions when you need it. Uh, a content layer may actually leverage the value of those validators. So they will have the same power as 10,000 validators because there, there might be 10 chunks in a block. So if you assume there are 10 content chunks in the block, you've got 10 chances at getting your transaction included for the same cost. It's a kind of interesting idea. Um, That's just like the more chunks in a block, the more entities that have the opportunity to include your transaction in that block. Yeah, that's right. So, so, and this is only, of course, if you own the validators, because otherwise you've got the kind of, you know, you're still up against the MEV auction winners. But if you own the validators, then you've got, you've got, you've got the number of validators you've got multiplied by the average number of chunks in a block. You're, you're that much better off. So, and remember, the the point is, this is the simplest possible content layer with the fewest moving parts. Uh, and it, to be honest, it doesn't do much, you know. So. The idea of this version is just that it's something we could implement quickly. And, you know, arguably, I would say, in the first version of, of ETH2. So the, the real advantage comes in, in upgrades. So once you've got a content layer that's running at low latency, then you can start doing exciting stuff with it. So in my original version of what I, I call the Alex, Alex protocol, which is a first implementation of it, that took transactions and ordered them randomly, uh, which, is, which is fair. It's a fair way of, of doing it, but there's a problem with that, which is statistical arbitrage, which I, I won't get into. 
um, but that actually could lead to transaction bloat. So I've sort of gone off that a bit. But what I'm, I'm now thinking is that you could use the content layer to encrypt the mempool. So users could send encrypted transactions to the mempool. And if the content layer is working every one to three seconds, then you might be able to use a time lock encryption mechanism that's set maybe at five, five seconds to decrypt transactions once they're chunked up. So once the ex execution order is guaranteed. So if you can do that, you've solved MEV because attackers don't know what's in your transactions when they're picking them. So they're, you know, they can't exploit them. Um, and there's other ways of doing it. You don't need to use time lock. You could use threshold encryption. Uh, but you know, the great thing is that this all happens potentially at speed within the content layer. So you can do this stuff within one block. So you don't need to get block delays. You don't have a block where the transactions are encrypted and a block where they're decrypted. This all happens in a different layer. So uh, you, know, you can then take it one step further and you can then add fair ordering on top of that. So you can then do fair ordering uh, you can then do fair ordering after you've encrypted. And, and there, are, there are good reasons for doing that. If you, if you encrypt first, then you've actually minimally incentivized even bad actors to order fairly. So you can fair order without encrypting, and it might be that as a community, we could choose to do that. So you start with your basic content layer, and then the next thing you do is fair order. And that's completely valid. Uh, one threat to fair ordering, which I'm sure you guys are aware of, is collusion. So you could have nodes being bribed to send a certain transaction order. And I think some, some of the, the threat there is, is a little bit overblown by some, but it's, you know, it's there as a possibility. But if you do manage to encrypt the, the transactions first, then fair order them, and then reveal them, then you're in a really good situation. Um, because essentially, when I say minimally incentivized, what I mean is that the lowest overhead for even a dishonest actor is to add transactions to a list. So if they've got a bunch of transactions, they don't know what's in them, then the cheapest thing for, for them to do in terms of the CPU on their server is just to pop that transaction on a list. It's literally just the least work. And that is ordering by arrival time, which is the input to a fair ordering protocol like Equitas. So, yeah, so <laughs> that's how you solve MEV. There we go. You know, maybe. But gotcha. A lot of context it's, it's, there. It's, 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 it's worth a look, right? You know, it's, it's my point. You know, it's, it's a credible roadmap, and I, and I feel it, it deserves being researched by someone other than just myself. <laughs> one, one question I did have, and it sounds, a lot of it makes a lot of sense to me, actually. A lot of uh -huh. it's kind of very similar to, to chain like FSS, that although that's kind of at a different different layer, I think they're complementary. But one question I had is it kind of sounds like when you're creating these chunks, you could have like the chunks created for like the next a thousand blocks already before you have time to produce those blocks. So yeah. if you need something like an Oracle update to trigger a liquidation of a loan because some position becomes under collateralized, but the next like a thousand or ten thousand block, ten thousand chunks, I mean. Have already been created. Is there a possibility for the Oracle update to be inserted sooner? Like, can they jump the queue to make sure some position can get uh, liquidated in time? Or does that Oracle update have to be added to the end of the queue and then the liquidation happens at the end of the queue? 
Like, is well, there any possibility to skip the queue for something that's like that needs to get through immediately to, to protect user funds? Sure. I, I would suggest that you need to get out of the mindset of skipping the queue. That if you've got an Oracle update, everybody, everybody's going to be in that situation where the content layer is racing ahead and the, and the, the structural layer can't keep up with it. In that situation, everybody is delayed equally. So if you're putting your price update in, although it might be processed at a later point in time, it's in the correct time order where it should be in the, in the blockchain when it, gets, when it gets put in there. So you're, you're not, you know, the, and, and every, everything else that the contract that you're talking about that's going to be liquidated or, or not is also, you know, in the same blockchain and on the same timeline. So I suppose it's it's a lag, but it's almost like it sounds like you're sort of saying it, it might be a distortion. But I think what I'm saying is it's it's not a distortion. It's the opposite. It's it's a lag in that situation. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen too much, but I think, you know, that we certainly will at points. But it's a lag, but it's not really a distortion. So the, 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 the transactions that were before your Oracle update should have been before it and the transactions that are after it should have been after it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that generally makes sense. I had a question though. Would would you optimistically though accept, like for example, you want it, the market's very volatile and you're waiting for your transaction to be processed. Could you optimistically make another one using the capital if the capital wasn't processed yet and released to you? Um, well, I, uh, I don't think so because by the time you're, later transaction gets processed you won't have the capital will you because you'd have been liquidated which comes back to the well, i'm saying not so, I mean, that, yeah i guess i don't know i was just thinking of a scenario where you wanted to have access to that capital but it was not yet processed uh yeah well in that sense no you you'd, you'd have to wait i mean if you've got you've got to wait your your turn in in an orderly queue you know which is just i suppose okay this this would be my point about this is that what I've done is solved MEV, uh, you know, let's say, but what you presented with me with is a scaling issue. So what I'm saying is, and this is actually, this is a really interesting point. What I'm saying is don't try and solve, uh, don't try and solve scaling issues by increasing MEV. Yeah, you need to do fair ordering of transactions to solve MEV and you need to solve scaling. Because it's it's scaling which which is creating that back, backlog, it's not anything else. So, so yeah, don't don't conflate these two, or you or you really will end up in in trouble because they're both massively gnarly problems of their own. And I, I think that is what's happening. I think there's this kind of, you know, maybe we can't do this until we until we fix scaling because I think there's this fear like God, I've got I've got to be able to jump the queue because you know, I've got to get my transaction in. But the whole of MEV and all of the the disastrous scenarios that come from it precisely come from being able to skip the queue. What you need to do is no one skips the queue, but because we solve scaling issues, everybody's transactions go through in a timely manner. So in our sort of, in this, in the, the way that I would like to see it work, perhaps you have L2s that are doing fair ordering, which I think we're going to talk about shortly. And then they roll up onto uh, you know, a base layer, which is also doing fair ordering. So you've got scaling and you don't have backlogs and yeah, you know, you've also got fair ordering. 
but yeah, it's, I, I think it's it's very really interesting point because I think it really shines a light on the conflation of these two things and how MEV would would probably uh, yeah how people might allow MEV to happen so that they can sort of temporarily alleviate scaling. You know, scaling is its own issue. Yeah, I think you hit the nail. I mean, I think I agree with that eventually you'll probably see a lot, like a lot of L2 happening anyway. So it will take a lot of that bloat off the main chain. I had one other question before we kind of move to the FSS. I was curious how, how you think EIP 1559 would interplay with your model because like it seems like a lot of the incentive, like financial incentives for miners and things like that are based a lot on this kind of tip that they're getting, which you wouldn't really have a tip in this in your proposed model. So I, mean, I don't know if you thought much about it, but I was just curious. Yeah, so uh, I mean, honestly, it does need a lot more thought because yeah, that's right. At the moment, EIP does, at the moment, yeah, miners wouldn't get, wouldn't get paid in that sense uh, from the, you know, they'd, they'd lose their tips. So you might want to do something where you don't, you know, this is, this is pretty much thinking off, you know, off the cuff, but you might want to do something where you don't burn all of the base fee, you give some of the base fee to the miner. And, you know, I'm sure I'd have to read the paper on it again, but, you know, you might be able to do something like that. So, so that you're, you're recompensing the miners a bit, but I I do think in generally, I would say that the point of ETH2 and the point of validators versus miners is you don't really have to pay them as much because by definition, they're not doing as much work. Right, because we've moved to proof of stake. When they're doing proof of work, they are like burning energy <laughs> horrifically, and uh, you know they need the latest graphics cards or ASICs or whatever. And when you know you now got a situation where you've got the beacon chain, which has been really well secured at the moment by what is it, like 100, 178,000 validators, I think, and and that's just based on block proposal rewards alone, and it's got loads of uptake. You know, and, and the part of the reason is that some people, and I know this isn't sustainable, but some people are ras- r- r- uh, running it on a Raspberry Pi. You know, you just don't need the same hardware costs. And that translates into, you don't have to pay them as much. So <laughs> I probably get lots of hate tweets for this, but you know, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, they're, they're not doing as much. So, so I'm not so worried that they're not gonna get paid as much. But I do, I do think you might have to do something where you you know you pay them some amount of this variable um, gas reward. Honestly, yeah. I haven't that's thought about I, it enough. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking too. I, it seemed like you could use that base fee, but I guess you know the IP one five nine coming down the pipeline, it's uh, a bit challenging. Or or you know maybe the miners could also be uh, you know be in this content later. Or I, I don't know if that, if that would be supplemental, but yeah, I've been looking into the mm. kind of incent- the security budget of different blockchains and kind of thinking more broadly about it, not just Ethereum and you know, whether multiple mm. blockchains will exist or whether it's better to consolidate because then you can get better security budgets. But I do yeah. think eventually you'll have consolidation with similar like shared security models like ETH2 and Polkadot and maybe Cosmos with their IBC. So anyways, it kind of stemmed from that. Yeah, yeah. I, by, by the way, I, I agree with that. I mean, by the way, I think EIP1559 actually benefits the, a content layer solution because you've already got this big, big change where you have got this base fee. And I think it would, it would work 
based on the base fee because the point is you don't want to have something where there are different fees for each transaction within the the block you know you've got to have something where there's sort of one fee for for all and that's what the base fee gives you so actually i think it's like done half of the work already on that on that front i think something else that's kind of interesting on the note of eip 1559 is that it in a way it kind of creates a like a lower bound for the type of mev you can extract because today miners can include their own transactions in a block for completely free they don't have to pay anything because yeah. they control it but with eip 1559 there's like a strict you have to pay the base fee and it will be burned and so that's kind of prevents miners from just inserting a bunch of low value transactions so like realistically the, the least amount of MEV you could extract would be like the maximum base fee of a transaction. So it's not it's not like a solution to MEV and it's not supposed to be, but like in yeah. a sense, it kind of gives it like a lower bound, which yes. helps prevent some forms of MEV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. So I think it's, it's like entirely complementary. So yeah. I, th I think your solution is very interesting. I think it, I, I think it does need more. <laughs> like just discussion from other people. I don't think many people, uh, there's a lot of focus on MEV auctions to, to say the least. So yeah. I think like a complementary approach to this where your solution's kind of focused on like solving it at the layer one, kind of a hard fork change to Ethereum. Uh, what we kind of see with Chainlink and Chainlink FSS or fair sequencing services is effectively an MEV solution on a application specific level. So before any base layer L1 change is made, this can be done on an application contract by contrast basis on the layer one, or what we'll likely see is like a, an entire layer two network using Chainlink FSS. So effectively, just to kind of provide some context and then I kind of want to get your feedback is mm -hmm. FSS is effectively decoupling the production of blocks from the ordering of transactions in those blocks. And the ordering is effectively done through a decentralized Oracle network. And these would be kind of the same Oracle nodes that already secure tens of billions of dollars in price feeds and proof reserve, VRF, any API, and eventually also even running like the L2 validator nodes like Arbitrum. So realistically, mm. if you're already trusting your Oracle for correct data, uh, for computing the state, for providing privacy, providing scalability, then it's kind of a small step to also uh, to hire them effectively to order your layer two transactions as well. And because it's in this decentralized model and there's all these uh, economic incentives to continue, it's more like reputation based where you don't want to manipulate the ordering of transactions. You couldn't on your own, you would have to collude with the majority, but the majority is not going to want to because they have so much revenue from all their Oracle services as well. So that's kind of the aspect that prevents like collusion, but effectively it's stripping away the ability for like a single miner or a single validator for ordering it and kind of pushing it to an Oracle layer. And then that Oracle layer can effectively uh, use any order ordering policy from like the Aquitus kind of type area of fair sequencing. But the most realistic is probably first in first out. So like first seen in the mempool. So uh, the time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that that's kind of effectively like a broad overview. CO might have some more more context on this. Yeah, I think just a couple of things. It's not a, it's not one like network. Like you, you could have lots of different Oracle networks that are providing, you know, different fair sequencing services. So it's not, you know, I don't think some people may think of it as a single network. You could have a super decentralized one, or you could have one 
I don't know, you could even have certain just smaller ones if you want to pay a lower cost or maybe you have certain enterprise ones. I don't know. There's different ways you could do it. Um, and there's also like, it's hard to talk completely about it because it's not, it's not live or anything yet, but there are a lot of customizations that, you know, that, that were discussed in the white paper, you know, whether you want to go direct to the mempool or whether you want to go direct to the, you know, Oracle network, whether, you know, you only have the Oracle network that's ordering, or you have kind of a dual class where you could have other people participating, but maybe implement like a speed bump. Then you could have, you know, different ways to sequence them, you know, whether that's Aquadis, you know, they mentioned specifically Aquadis in the, in the paper, but also like, you know, some cryptographic techniques, kind of like you had talked about with like, you know, there's different different ways to encrypt transactions, so you don't uh -huh. so that no no one you know commit reveal or threshold encryption. Or there's a couple of ways that are briefly discussed in there. So I, I think it's 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 really like an application specific or role specific. Like it's not it, like it's not going to directly it's not directly in the, integrated into the base layer. I think some people they like they think that like Chainlink solving it at the base layer or or they mm. but it's but it's more like you know application or role specific. So curious, maybe your your general thoughts on it. I don't know how much you've looked into it or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I listened to you know some of your podcast about it. I mean, I, I <laughs> it sounds really good to me. The what, what I what I'm sort of one of the things that I'm sort of initially hearing is I, I like the I like the fact you're using your existing um, network of oracles. So you've you've kind of got something there already that you're using, which makes me feel like. I don't know what your time scale is on this. In fact, I'd like to know what your time scale is on this, but it sounds like something you, you might be able to get out relatively soon. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> okay. We're not, uh, we're, 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 we're not developing it or anything, so we don't, we don't Sure. Know. Okay. I mean, I, uh, you know, so one of the other things I liked about it is this sort of reputational aspects of nodes, that if you can secure that and you have got reputational collateral that's at risk, that's really strong because that doesn't exist at all uh you know in the in the ethereum miner validator community you know you don't kind of go oh i i trust blocks from this miner <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't really happen so if, if you've got a, a mechanism that that works for for you know allowing reputation to be used in that way then i think that could be really powerful and could be really powerful as i think you mentioned as an anti-collusion measure the the the, the, the certainly the biggest detractors of of fair ordering tend to go for the collusion aspect of it, which is that you know you could sort of corrupt it in some way. Um, but reputation could be quite a powerful, um, you know, combatant as far as that goes. Yeah, I think a, a mix of decentralization and, and reputation. I think you know, mm -hmm. if you're already doing like CLG said before, if you're already doing a lot of services, or you know, you you could split it too. Like if you if you wanted some the, an Oracle network to do sequencing separate from the one that's doing another part, just to kind of have a separation, you know, security by separation, you could. But if you're already trusting them to do a lot of these things, and I don't think it's a it's not a very far step to also do that. So yeah. But I, I think the, the good thing with with something like Chainlink is you already have a a network of of you basically can boots bootstrap a pretty decent sized network to to already to, to to implement this and you're not just having a bunch of no like nodes that you don't really know about you could you know you're subject to civil attacks like these nodes have yeah. long on-chain histories you can go verify their on-chain history and price feeds like Chainlink already has some reputation uh, uh systems that are set up where you can you know go view all the different stats about them 
And also you could add to these networks too. Like, you know, a lot of, you could add, make these networks larger. You could add more people from different communities, maybe applications that are part of this. So that there's a lot of ways you could design it to, to get the specific trust assumptions. And I, and I think, you know, worst case scenario, you get something like, you know, what we already have today. So like, that's like the worst, worst Absolutely. case scenario. Yeah, it's really important to say that. Thank you for saying that. That that's true of so in, in what I was talking about, you know, with the content layer, it decays to being hopefully it actually decays to being much better than what we have. It decays to the the simplest version where you've only reduced MEV by forty percent. But then if you if you manage to get fair warning and encryption on top of that, then then you know, bingo, you've 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 defeated. Right. MEV. I, I think, so it's, yeah. like, it's like yeah, the, 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 it's like the worst. If you're the worst, you're going to get is something better than we have now. It's a pretty compelling reason to to do something. Yeah, I, I think I think kind of like a key point here with like because of this like heterogeneous design is like each layer two network like Arbitrum or Optimism or zk Sync or whatever they can they all can choose their specific nodes that they want to order their transactions. It, it, like Co said, you can choose the same nodes that do your price feeds for you that do the same layer two validation, you know, post fraud proofs as needed, and so like. It's kind of it's like a chain like FSS. It's it's like not a single network. It's like a framework for building fair sequencing services effectively, where each network can effectively be bootstrapped using the existing collection of oracles. And people's definition of oracles is kind of like, oh, they deliver data. They do that. Like that's what they do. But like that's not just what they do. Like they're like generalized off-chain agents who can be hired to go do hybrid tasks that involve off-chain systems like the mempool plus on-chain systems like posting those transactions. So realistically, like it doesn't take too much to bootstrap this kind of system. And you could just use the existing system of Chainlink nodes where if a Chainlink node is making, you know, hundreds of thousands a year in revenue from their Oracle services, being malicious for like a couple of FSS blocks, which would be apparent to everyone because if you're getting front run, you know, FSS is supposed to prevent front running through this decentralization first in, first yeah. out. But if you're seeing people get front run, then clearly that's not working and the reputation of those nodes are going to be harmed and they're going to get booted out of that FSS network, meaning they're not getting paid for that. Plus, they're probably also going to get booted from every other Oracle network because how can you trust these nodes anymore? Mm -hmm. So it's like they're secured through this like future revenue plus their profit opportunity and worst case scenario, if it's really bad, could even affect the value of the link token itself. So it's like, yes. it's like these crypto economic incentives that like that, that's why, you know, the, the incentives are kind of aligned there. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's quite right. Um, yeah. I, I to be honest, I think it's hearing you talk about it. It, it sounds very strong because you've, you're going to have this need for all these various L2s to do fair ordering. You know, I think there's going to be a, a real demand for it. And if they're all doing it, then they're all more corruptible than if they allowed one actor, such as you know Chainlink Oracles, to do it. Because it's not, it's not, it's not as if um, you know it's sort of oh, well, yeah, but that's centralizing. It's not centralizing because you are a group of decentralized nodes. So it's it seems to me that fair ordering services are a legitimate layer to have broken off to provide a service to layer two. And I think actually in a way, if you manage to do that and you provide that service, I think uh, you know a lot of L2s would and should be very grateful for that because they don't have to manage the headache of dealing with MEV. You've kind of done it for them. 
and by consolidating all of these you know by increasing the value you've increased the number of nodes that are securing it and you're probably doing a better job than the l2s would be able to do on their own so it's actually it's interesting because I, I did i had also thought that well if you've if you've got a situation where i thought of something similar we've got a situation where nodes are doing fair ordering for the base layer then you know maybe they could also while they're at it do a bit of fair ordering for l for l2s you know i think the idea of fair ordering for l2s and and for other services is 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 strong yeah i, I can really see the the need for that i think you could actually use the oracles as well in that content layer as a, a way to bootstrap that particular uh network but what, one of the things i was also going to say too is that i think once you introduce fair ordering on a specific application or on a specific rollup, I think it just kind of creates a snowball effect mm -hmm. where like, if like, why would I use this other application if they're not using fair sequencing service? I, I just don't see the benefit. Like there's a benefit to a certain group of very like savvy users, but for everyone else, it's really, there is really no benefit. Like the only way I could see you not using is you just really don't know. But if you're, if you understand there's a better model, I, I just fail to see how you wouldn't move to that model and how then it would pretty much force everyone else to implement that model. Or you kind of look like you're not good to your users in a way. Yes, I think I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And 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 I think we probably will see that happen. I mean, the only the only way is if things are sort of so. I suppose just think about it like. You know, Robin, Robin Hood, for example, is is a sort of vote against the idea. And Robin Hood, you don't have transaction fees, as I understand it, do you? But they just front run you to, 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 to with an inch of your life instead. So they they sell your order flow, as I understand it, don't they? Um, I, I, I'm, I, you know what? I'm, I don't know this model carefully, so I should be careful what I say. But uh, as I understand that's, it, that, that's my understanding. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. So, so you might have a situation where people go, "Oh, look, this is this just doesn't have transaction fees. Like we're not having to pay for fair ordering." And they don't realize. How much money they're losing to it, um, but but generally, I do I do think you know, especially given what a problem MEV is clearly becoming and and will be, I think it'll be a bit of a no brainer to move over to fair ordering when it's available. Yeah, yeah. Just the last one. I, I actually don't think most people realize. Like, I don't think most people know. I, I don't even know like how much I'm losing in slippage a lot of times. Like, I'm honestly mm. not a lot. I'm not a. I'm not a data scientist. I I don't. Uh, I, you know, I'm not an MEV searcher, so I, but I don't think a lot of people realize how much they're losing. So when you switch to an FSS, they might actually start to realize over time, kind of, you know, where, you know, the differences. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where some visibility as well and some better data on, on MEV would be good. You know, I think um, uh, MEV Explore does a pretty good job on MEV Inspect. Uh, I think they need to break break down the the different types of attack a, a bit more, but I think it's you know a step in the right direction, which is that we need to, we need visibility of of this stuff and what's happening and and how much people are losing. Yeah, I think it's almost like it comes down to like an information asymmetry where like when when you have front running on like Robinhood, you know it's so opaque. No one like you're not seeing the front running happening, but when you're on DeFi, everybody can or at least realistically you can see the front running happen in the blocks. And as we get better dashboards, it's going to become more and more clear. So I think like yeah. over time, when we have a diversity of applications and a diversity of layer twos, where some use MEV protection mechanisms to prevent MEV and others don't, 
like the question to a user is, Hey, do you want to lose money or do you want to use this solution where you're not going to lose money? Like it's, yeah, it's going to be like a clear decision really. But I think that along the lines of like information asymmetry, it kind of seems like there's a, like different views of MEV in the ecosystem. So we kind of have like a MEV is inevitable. So let's just democratize it the best we can. And then there's kind of where I kind of feel like where we are, where it's, MEV is solvable, it's not inevitable. So mm -hmm. let's try and decentralize the uh, ordering and kind of implement fair sequencing. So is is that kind of what you see? Do you think there's like a large schism there? Do you think there's like a bridge between these two ideologies or do you not see these ideologies at all? Uh, I think that's exactly right, that, that that's what's going on at the moment. And I'm, I'm a bit bemused by it, if, if in an all honesty. So I feel like there was this amazing watershed moment when the Flash Boys 2 paper came out. And it's what, you know, all of 2019, you know, it's years ago in crypto, you know, the decades ago in crypto time. But, you know, the way that I would have expected the community to react to that point was, wow, you know, we've got a serious problem here. We've got to get this under control. We need like a kind of wartime mobilization effort to, to combat MEV and, and uh, you know, fight back. And, in, and instead, what we seem to, we just seem to fall very quickly into this sort of depressing fatalism that it's, it's all inevitable, it's gonna happen anyway, there's nothing we can do about it. And I, I, I never really, I've never really seen any, you know, academic or theoretical basis for that position, not any that's convinced me anyway, as to why there's this like fixed amount of MEV that's just gonna be extracted, whatever you do. So let's, you know, democratize it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm. It's a bit of a mystery to me, honestly, how we ended up there. I feel. I feel like I kind of blacked out for a moment, and when I came to, you know, <laughs> I was in this weird world where front running was, you know, sort of slightly, almost bizarrely virtuous. So I don't know how we got there. I mean, I don't know if you've got any theories about it, but it's it's a it's a funny one. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure either. I think it's. I mean, it's it's not an easy problem to solve. If it was, it would have already been yeah. solved. <laughs> But I think it's I think you drew this analogy that it's almost like the double spending problem. Like for decades, that was considered impossible to solve until we use decentralization incentives to not necessarily 100 percent solve it, but solve it to a degree where it's so expensive to manipulate that it's unrealistic. I think that it's kind of we're kind of in the same position with MEV where it's it's not easy to solve. But if we have the right decentralization and incentives, then effectively we can solve it to a degree where it's expensive to manipulate yeah exactly and, and it's funny given given that that's how we solved double spending problem it's funny that we wouldn't have straight away thought so you know maybe we could apply that to mev maybe that would solve mev and you know really really sort of thoroughly research that and 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 put an awful lot of effort into that and it, and it feels like i the, the, you know i struggle to find uh, I'd struggle to find research on fixing MEV in the base layer other than mine, if I'm honest, you know, and I'm some guy on the internet. So I, I do feel like there could have been, well, there needs to be far more research into it before we kind of go, oh, no, yeah, we're right. This is all inevitable and, and we can't fix it. Like, well, how do we know? Have we tried? So, yeah. A lot of, a lot of the, there's just been a lot of focus on like scaling and some of the other solutions that I think. And also, I don't think there was really much information. I mean, only in the last maybe like six months, 
maybe a little bit more have people like have, have even like kind of people who follow really closely started to recognize like what MEV is and how much it impacts the space and, and that's just like core yeah. people I don't think you know if you go beyond that to you know a lot of people who just casually use crypto like they have really no idea I mean the space isn't that big as it is let alone how many people actually are focusing on it then let alone how many people have the bandwidth to actually go and, and solve it and write research and, and this so I think we're just at a, a very early stage of MEV where it, we're just now learning about it. And, and now, you know, hopefully we'll have Chainic FSS and hopefully we'll have some more other research like yours that'll come out and, and kind of, you know, really put put the collective effort towards solving this. I think you're right. And I, and I you know, I also, I do, I do feel kind of bad for the, for the core devs because I think that, you know, they're, they're so overburdened already. They got such a, there's such a lot on their plate. And, you know, that was quite nice, this idea that you could have, you know, an organization like Flashbots that would sort of just mitigate that for you and you wouldn't have to get your hands too dirty with it. And you could just carry on, you know, getting ETH2 out. And I, I almost feel like, you know, bad that I'm kind of going, oh, you know, sorry, but yeah, I might have got a bit more work to do <laughs> just over here with this MEV thing. Um, and yeah, I can sort of see the, 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 I can see how it would have been attractive to sort of go, look, you know, you guys you mitigate MEV over there and, and, you know, we'll just sort of uh, get the beacon chain sorted out and whatnot. So, you know, there might, there might've been something like, something like that going on that, you know, and I, and I, you know, we're a distributed, it's a distributed entity Ethereum and it, and it takes, it takes a while for things to, to bubble up and, and for things to, you know, sort of ideas to prove themselves and whatnot. And, and as you say, it hasn't been long. I mean, 2019 was when, the uh, you know that the Flash Boys paper came out, so it hasn't really been that long, and and stuff is beginning to happen. I'd say. Yeah, I think in like terms of bandwidth, I think a lot of people are pretty much focused on like solving scalability, which you know is a major mm -hmm. issue, no doubt. But like that's a hurdle that realistically, within like the next year, it's not going to be solved, but it's going to be very much mitigated with like rollups, and then hopefully E two and these data availability layers to store rollup data. I think scalability will become a little bit less of a concern. And I think that MEV and front running will probably be higher prioritized like in the, in the coming years, I think, because once scalability is kind of behind us, then like what's the next issue that people are going to solve? And I think in my opinion, and probably yours as well, I'm guessing is that MEV needs to be solved because you can have a million, billion, jillion <laughs> transactions per second, but if they're all front running you, then like, you know, that's what, what's the benefit realistically. You're absolutely right. And I, and I also agree with you that, that, that scaling is probably, probably needs to be done first. And it's, it's interesting. I really liked your point earlier about how, oh, but what about if you, what about you've got this, this queue, which is all bunged up on the content layer. And I just want to get my transaction in. And it's like, yeah, well, that's a scaling issue. So it, that sort of suggests that you need to know you've got scaling sorted out in order that you can do this effective time ordered content layer, you know, so it's, um, yeah. So I, you know, it's, there we go. It's all coming, isn't it? It's all coming, work in progress. Yeah, it's a, a lot of smart minds are working on this, so. Absolutely they are, yeah. So do you have a, we, we've discussed a lot in this podcast about <laughs> what MEV is, some of the different solutions, their advantages and trade-offs and kind of uh, different propositions. Do you have any general kind of closing thoughts that you want the readers to kind of like take away about MEV in general, what we can do, what the situation is. 
I mean, we've covered so much of it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd say, yeah, take MEV seriously. You know, left, left, un, left unfixed, it absolutely is an existential threat to Ethereum. But don't be paralyzed by fear and fatalism. You know, at the end of the day, MEV is just a vulnerability. And we're developers and we fix vulnerabilities in our software is what we do. So even if it's not in six months time, you know, let, let's, let's fix it. You know, let's choose to fix it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wise words. <laughs> so to kind of, kind of endings off on this podcast, where can people go to learn more about MEV in general and learn more specifically about your work on MEV? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of where to find me, I would love to say you go to this website, um, but I haven't got that website together. So I'm, I mean, the easiest thing right now is just to follow me on on Twitter, to be honest. So that's at PMC Guen Crypto um, or PMC Guen Medium dot com. I do articles every now and then there or come and find me on ETH Research. But, you know, a, a lot of my ideas right now are not documented. And so, you know, lots of my stuff is a bit out of date. So if you follow me on Twitter, then you'll hear about my sort of ideas as and when they come. And I will be getting a website together with some of my sort of data extraction tools and, you know, some data flowing hopefully soon. Um, so, yeah. Perfect. Well, I'm very glad to have you on. Uh, it was a great discussion at MEV and thanks for CO for kind of co-hosting this with me. I think that's, there's definitely a lot of takeaways from this one, a lot, to, a lot of digest. And I just hope that people start to think, like you said, take MEV more seriously and just kind of think that it's not inevitable. We can do something about it. Maybe it's mm -hmm. not 100% solvable, but it doesn't need to be. Nothing is. So once again, I want to I thank everybody for listening and have a good one.